0: We've been spending most of this year really on why we're here and Mark chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 28 Jesus lays it out very clearly. He said you are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Matthew 28, go into all the world among all the nations and make disciples of all nations and then baptizing them. We're not going to go into that part right now because the first part is what we need to do is to go into all the world and what we're looking at is we're to go and we're to preach the gospel We've looked at what the gospel is, and we looked at other aspects of it, but we're spending time right now to look at what does it mean for us to preach, because that word preach implies to us, or at least conjures up this image of somebody standing behind a pulpit and pointing a finger, or somebody on a street corner handing out tracts or with a bullhorn, and there's so much more to preaching the gospel than that, there's so much more that's more effective in preaching the gospel and all that. Because it's very easy when you hear preach the gospel to think in terms of, well, that's not, I'm not a preacher. And so therefore that's for the professionals to do. I'm going to move closer to you. That's for the professionals to do. But the word, if you look in the, in the book of uh, Ephesians where it lays out what the ministry is all about, it says that the 5 ministry, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher are there to equip the saints, that's all of us, so that we can all do the work of the ministry. Everybody say work. work. See, there's the, that's that four-letter word again. Work, and ministry is work. But we think of ministry as terms of a profession, and ministry is simply the word literally means table waiter. It means a servant, somebody that takes a meal that's been prepared by somebody else and brings it to those that are hungry. Jesus has prepared the meal. He is the meal. He is the bread of life. He is the. He is the. He is life itself. In eternal life and where our responsibility as table waiters is to bring that message and to bring him to people that are hungry that are thirsty, that are dying so that's what ministry is basically and all kinds of aspects that go in to feed that but the ministry that what we most likely think of the ministry as is the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor and teacher their role is to equip us so that we can go do that work of ministry and so it's important for us to understand when, the, when Jesus says, to go and preach the gospel, he's not talking about standing behind a pulpit and doing what I'm doing right now. That's a part of it, but it's a very small part of it because if only a very small percentage of us are called to do that, then how is the world going to be reached? I know there's television now and there's internet and all that, but then what are the rest of us supposed to do? And so this is what we're learning. And so what we began to look at as we went through Romans chapter 10 and we looked at the process of salvation and we saw this process that in order for somebody to be saved they must call upon the name of the Lord we saw that call upon does not just mean shout out a name it means to appeal to put your trust in put your reliance on for your salvation for your being saved from the guilt from your sin and from the judgment for our sin but how are they going to call on somebody if they don't believe in him? If they don't believe he exists and they don't believe they can come to him. Hebrews 11, 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because in order to come to God, you must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So, in order to come to him, to call upon him, you must believe certain things about him. You must believe he exists and you must believe that he's going to listen to you and reward you. In fact, Romans chapter 10 says, For all who call upon the name of the Lord will not be ashamed, they will not be let down, they will not be disappointed. So how are they going to call on him if they don't believe in him? And how are they going to believe in him if somebody doesn't talk to them about him? Because Matthew or, uh, Romans 10.17 says, Faith to believe comes by hearing. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So how are they going to believe if they don't hear the word? And how are they going to hear if nobody tells them? If there, nobody preaches it, it says, without a preacher. And how are they going to be preachers if nobody sends them? So they have to be sent in order to preach. Then they have to preach so that somebody can hear. They have to hear in order to believe. And they have to believe before they can call upon him. Each one of those steps is necessary before somebody comes to the place of calling upon the name of the Lord. And therefore he can come into their life and save them. And if you're in Christ, and I know most of us, almost all of us are, somewhere along the line we went through that process. You may not have been aware of the steps in that process, but God was aware of it, and He was orchestrating it. People in your lives come to you to share the gospel with you at just the right time. It may have been on television. It may have been here sitting in a blue chair. It may have been on a street corner. I don't know where it was, but somehow God orchestrated, God orchestrated that. God arranged that. God called people to come across your path and to share that word at just the right time. And that's exciting and, and, and wonderful to know that God loves me so much that He did that. But they had to respond to that call. In my life, somebody had to open their mouth and tell me. I had to pick people that were willing to come and share with me, to, to, that loved me and tell me things. And in your case, you can probably find, remember who it was. But they had to be willing to go. They had to be willing to open their mouth. They had to be willing to set their own uncomfortableness aside in order for you to be here today, to be in the kingdom of God today. So Matthew chapter 10 is kind of, and then we're going to go in a little different direction today, but I was just, as I was looking this over uh, the other day, this really struck me because this is Jesus saying, because we ended up last time, it's showing a living example of that out of Acts chapter 10, and then out of Acts chapter, I think it's 6, where in Acts chapter 10 is the story of Cornelius wants to get saved, he's been praying, God, I don't know what to do, so an angel appears to him and says, go send, for there's a man in Joppa called Peter, send for he'll come to, up to Caesarea. And then there's a Peter as a vision, and then the Holy Spirit speaks to him. So he got all this supernatural activity just to get one man to go from, Joppa, uh, from Sa- Joppa up to Caesarea so that he can share words with him. And that makes clear to me vivid that God's got his part, which was to get them, talk to them, and get them in the right position, but then we have our part, and that was Peter had to be willing to go and open his mouth and share the words of what he knew. And then we saw over, I think it was Acts chapter 6, we saw uh, an Ethiopian eunuch who was reading Isaiah and didn't know what it meant and was crying out for me. and, And the Spirit of God told Philip to go and track down this eunuch and get in that chariot with him and tell him what those words mean. Why couldn't the angel tell him? Because God needs us to speak so that people can hear. And here's another example of that. Before we get into this, this is Jesus. Actually, I said it's Acts uh, 10. Actually, it's 9:35 through 38. But if you're in 10, just go back a couple of verses. When Jesus was bending been about in all the cities, basically, Jesus has been preaching. Jesus has been healing the sick. And in verse 37, verse 36, it says, He saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered and having no sheep. He saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion because they were weary and had no sheep. Verse 37, and he said to his disciples, Truly the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to sound out laborers into His harvest. So Jesus is looking out over Jerusalem. He's looking out over the lost. And He's hurting for them. Because He sees that they're lost. God looks down and sees the spiritual state of every person. And there are people we walk by every day. There are people we work with. or are people that, that, that pass us by all every day. We, people we have contact with every day that God looks upon them and sees their lost state. And lost, understand, does not mean just they're walking around in this world bumping into things because they can't see where they are and they don't know where they are. Lost means they're going to spend an eternity in hell. That's what lost means. It doesn't just mean their state here. It means their eternal state, their eternal condition. God sees that and His heart breaks for them. He's moved with compassion for them. That's what moved Him to send Jesus here to begin with. He was moved with caring for us and for them. But notice what Jesus... Jesus didn't go solve it. Jesus said, Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest. So there's a Lord over a harvest that's going to come. Send laborers out into the field to bring in the harvest. Now if you're a farmer, all you can do is plant the seed and water it. You can't make it grow. That's not your role. A farmer's role is to dig the ground up, Plow the ground up, plant the seed, and water it. But the growing is something he can't do, and that's kind of what Paul says in First Corinthians chapter three. Says, "I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God that gives the increase." So we share the word, we share the, 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 the our testimony, we share the word, and and we pray for people. That's the watering, but God's the one that has to do the inside work. But if we don't do our part, He can't do that part. And so here's Jesus looking over a whole population saying to the the disciples, pray the Lord of the harvest that He would send laborers out, people that will go and be, um, be sent out, people that will go and share this good news so that the harvest can be brought in. And then chapter 10, Jesus does that with His disciples. He commissions them to go out and to share the gospel. And we'll talk more about that as we, after we finish this phase we're about to go into. But now having said all that, having told them what their commission is, what they're being sent out to do, having now been training them to do it, we're going to go now to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Now Jesus has died on the cross, he's been raised from the dead, he's been among them for about 40 days, and he's about to be ascended into heaven and not come back again until his second return, until his return. In verse 4 he gives them additional instructions. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You have heard from Me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized not many days from now. And therefore when they had come together, they asked Him, saying, Lord, at this time are You going to restore the kingdom? And He said to them, It's not for You to know the times or the seasons, which My Father has put in His own authority. There's still people guessing when that time and season is. Now, we can know the seed, we can have an idea of the era that we're in, but we just passed that time in September when there were people predicting that was the end because it was the fourth blood moon in some period of time. And guess what? We're still here. Elsewhere, Jesus said, I don't know. Now, I can't imagine if God hasn't told Jesus that he's going to go telling other people. Now, that doesn't mean we scoff at it because there is going to come a day when he's coming. So we have to live our life prepared, not just waiting for prophets to tell us it's today and therefore we can just do what we want. We have to live our life prepared every day as if, that were, if this were the day. But he said, it's not for you to know the times of the season which my father has established or put by his own authority. But you shall receive power, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He just told them in verse 4 that having been trained by Him having been equipped by Him having been taught by Him they still needed something else. Wait in Jerusalem because you're still missing something else. You're missing the power and that word power is dunamis in Greek which is where we get the word dynamite from. It is God's ability. You need power from on high. In Luke chapter 24 He had told them ahead of time that there's the promise of the Father that's going to come. Now He's reminding them that. He said, I've gone to the cross, I've paid for your sin. I've been raised from the dead as, as, as proof of who I am, and now you need to wait here until you're endued with power from on high. Not power from your education, not power that comes from your fellowship group, but power that comes from on high. God-given power, the power of God. And that's what in Romans 8.11 says, If the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He will also quicken, make alive your mortal body. And so he says you're going to need to wait until you've been endued with that power from on high. Then he explains to them in verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And we want that power, but notice what it's for. And you shall be witnesses to me. Some translation says you shall be my witnesses, but that literally means you shall be a witness of me. Where, in Jerusalem, which is where they were right then, in all Judea, which was the surrounding community, and then Samaria, which was a foreign nation to them—that was a, the nation was the next nation up north of them—and then all to all the ends of the earth. But what we want to begin to look at. Because what Jesus is now telling them to go out and preach the gospel, but notice how he tells them to do it. So we're, going to, we're looking at now for the next several weeks, what does it mean to preach the gospel? What does the Bible say? What does Jesus say preaching the gospel means? And here's the very last instruction he gives them. He's told them to go preach the gospel in, Matthew, in Mark 16 and in Matthew 28. But now he's going to tell them how to do that. You shall be witnesses of me. The word witness there is, the, is a noun in Greek. A noun is a person, place, or thing. But we've turned it into a verb. And we read that, you shall go witness for him. He didn't tell us to go witness for him He told us to be witnesses of Him. It's a lot easier to go and witness for somebody. It's a lot more difficult to be a witness of them. So apparently preaching doesn't just mean telling people about Jesus. It doesn't mean just knocking on doors, handing out tracts, saying, you know, you need to get saved, you're lost, you're going to hell. You know, if you don't receive Jesus, you're all going to hell. That doesn't work too well. There have been times and seasons when that worked. But what we're going to see is Jesus has commanded us in preaching the gospel that we are to be living the gospel. What does it mean to be a witness of? Well, let's go over, let's go over to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, Paul is writing this letter to a church in Corinth, which is the very southern part of of Greece. This was a church that he founded, he established, on his, I think, his second missionary journey. He established this church. And then there were some problems in the church. If you read 1 Corinthians, which was the first letter that we have that he sent to this church, he was correcting a number of issues in the church. It's interesting because I did a study last year of what is the... It's a little side trip here. What is the church supposed to be? Because there are many people building churches and big churches and smaller churches and they've got multiple campuses and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But I began to go back and and ask, what is a church supposed to be? I mean, we can build a big church. All you got to do is tell people what they want to hear. You can get a crowd, make people feel good about themselves and you can get a crowd... Meet people's needs, and that's good. We should do that. And you can get a crowd. But the question is, are we building his church? Or are we building our church? And that's a critical question, because as a pastor, I'm going to stand to give an account for whether this was his church and what he wanted. You can go into the fourth chapter of, of uh, excuse me, uh, you can go into the, the second and third chapter of... of, of um, Revelation, and Jesus dictates to the, to the Apostle John a report card of seven churches. He says, I know you. I know what's going on in that church. That tells me Jesus knows Faith Christian Center. And he knows what's going on in here. And, and there was only one church he didn't have something to correct in there. And he corrected the other six and he said to the pastor of the church, because that's who the angel of the church was, he said, and if you don't correct these things, I'll remove my candlestick, my anointing. That's sobering thought. Because the problem is the anointing can be gone and we don't know it. The anointing is not goosebumps that you feel during praise and worship. It's the presence of God. And the reason the anointing can be gone and people don't know it is they didn't want it. They weren't used to it. So they don't notice it when it's not there because they weren't seeking after it. I'm seeking after it. I want the presence of God. And I don't believe His presence is here anywhere like He wants it to be here yet. But He's working on us. He's preparing us. But if you do repent, if you do are willing to make the changes, then He said, I won't remove it. I'll be my presence there. So the point of this is it's important to know what He wants the church to be. So I began to look at that And I began to look at what the Apostle Paul did with some of his churches. It's not what you see in church today. He got into their lives. He told them to stop doing some things they were doing. He got into their bedrooms. Oh, the church has no business. He got into what was going on in their bedroom. If they were doing things with somebody they weren't married to, he got right into that issue. He dealt with their finances. He dealt with their... He corrected that church. In fact, he corrected him when he wasn't even there by the Spirit. He says, I'm with you even when I'm not here. I can look into the church in the Spirit and see what's going on. But we want to be part of that kind of church. Praise God. Well, we're not going to go there this morning. All right. Oh, okay. I know why I got into that. This background so that church the corinthian church responded by telling him he wasn't welcome there anymore the church he founded the apostle paul you you can't come in here anymore so there's a second letter which we don't have apparently and this is another letter that he wrote and he's writing them to remind them of who he is not being puffed up in I'm paul because paul knew who he was on his own but he's saying the credentials I have to correct you, the credentials I have over this church is that God has anointed me and appointed me to be an apostle over this church and to direct this church. So he's starting here, and Paul had a very sharp wit. He could be very facetious and very cutting as he was, especially in this letter, because he's making a point here. And he says, he's talking here about coming to them with letters of commendation. Well, we would use that as as a reference. So if you're applying for a job, they want to know, do you have references, which is a letter somebody or an email nowadays. Somebody's willing to write to you saying, you know, I know so and so. They'd make a good, you know, whatever the job position is. They did a good job for me. But a letter of commendation is actually more than that. If somebody in those days were traveling to another nation or traveling to another area, and they would go to the king, and they would get from the king a letter, in fact, uh, I think it was um, uh, Ezra did that. I think when he went, uh, no, Nehemiah. Nehemiah did it to go back to, 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 be, to build the, rebuild the wall. He got from Cyrus a letter of commendation which is saying, I have sent him. And, and, and whatever he needs, you give to him. You provide for him. So a letter of commendation is a letter you would get from somebody who has prestige or authority that you could present to somebody to say, you may not know who I am, but the king says this is who I am. And that's, what you, that's the background of what a letter of commendation is. So let's read here in Second Corinthians 3, because Paul's about to pick up his correction of them. Do we begin again to commend ourselves... And he's saying that because what they were, they were criticizing him. says, you know, all you do, Paul, is brag. You're just commending yourself. Well, Paul was extremely humble. But see, because they were spiritually proud, they interpreted his authority as pride. Because you'll tend to attribute it to somebody else what's going on in your life. Oh, let's give you another little side there. This one's free. I've learned this in my life and i for scripture for it, that something really irritates you about somebody else. I mean, it really just gets into your skin about them. Most likely it's because it's a reflection back to you of things in you. And because you don't like it in you, you don't like it in them. And the way you don't like it in them is so you don't have to look it in you. Jesus put it this way, why are you trying to take a speck out of your brother's eye when there's a whole log sticking out of yours? In fact, what allows you to see the wood in somebody else's eye is because you're looking across the wood that's in your own eye. That's how you can recognize it. And so Paul's doing this as a way of saying, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Do you, you know, we're really, we're really, really trying to commend ourselves to you? Or do we need, as some others, epistles or letters of commendation to you Or letters of commendation from you. And here's the point, verse 2. You are our epistle. You are our letter, written in our hearts and known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle. That just means a letter of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the flesh that is of the heart. Paul is saying this. this, we'll cut through the sarcasm here, Paul is saying, I don't need a letter of commendation to you, you are my letter. What God has done in your life, the changes that have taken place in you, the, the presence of the Spirit in you, is because I came at a great sacrifice, and told you about the gospel. And what God has been able to do in you is because I came out of obedience and did my part. So you are, not, you are a letter, an epistle of Christ. So what Paul is saying here, it's not what you've said, it's not even what you do, it's who you've become is living evidence of what I've done in this church. What you are, what you've become, what your lives are is living epistles, living letters, living advertisements of Christ. Do you understand you're a billboard? You're a living billboard. You're a li- that's maybe a more, more up-to-date term than epistle. You, are, you and I are living advertisements of something. And the question is, what are we advertising? Sometimes I've been in churches and you see the, the worship team up there Singing about the joy of the Lord, and you wish they'd let their face know <laughs> because the words are coming out of their mouth, but the evidence isn't shining, the light's not on, and that's true with our lives. So, when, 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 when when Jesus told his disciples that they were go to be witnesses, that word witness, just step back into, into, into law school right now. I mean, we've all watched, you know, I'm sure on TV some kind of law, law show. They're, they seem to be very popular. Back in my day growing up, it was Perry Mason. I mean, the original Perry Mason. That's part of what made me want to be a lawyer. And you know what? It never worked that way. I've never saw people confess on the stand. I never, you know, it's like, oh, you got me. Oh, no. You know, now that's just very unrealistic. Most of courtroom work is waiting. It's boring. It's dull. It's just... But anyway, we don't, that, that's another side trip. All right. But let's go into a courtroom because if you're in a, in a court case, your job as a lawyer is to prove, to prove something. And to prove in, in, a, in a criminal case, to prove that something either happened or didn't happen. And there are other elements that go into it. And you've got to prove that to, in most cases, 12 men or women in a jury that decide what the facts are, what happened. And in almost every case, there's no movie that saw it happen, even if there was. You have to bring evidence to present to that jury. And there's different types of evidence. They could have found the knife and hold up Exhibit One. All right, that's some evidence of what happened, because now they can see how big the knife was. They can see the bloodstains on it. But then most of the evidence is you have to ask, have somebody go sit in a witness box or chair, and they tell a story. The lawyer asks them questions, and they respond to the questions by telling a story. And the purpose of that witness is to establish something to the satisfaction of that jury. Everybody with me so far? So a witness gives testimony of what they can see or hear. But under the rules of what kind of questions you can ask and the answers, which is the rules of evidence... There are only certain types of questions that are proper because otherwise you can get testimony being given of something that's not reliable. I remember one time one of our sons had been working in a department store and he saw a shoplifter go through and get to the door and he called the security guard and they went over and caught this woman with you know, a, a, a dress over the top of it but the whole bottom of the cart was filled with things what she was doing is she was having her daughter create a, a distraction and she was slipping out the door. This was back before they had the electronic stuff. Slipping out the door with carts of, of merchandise. And they caught her. And now, a year later, whatever it was later, there's the trial and my, so, our son has been summoned to give his testimony and the, 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 the uh, prosecutor had talked to him and so forth. So I went with him because he was young and I thought I ought to go with him because I was used to going to the court. And so we're waiting and waiting and waiting for the court case to be called. And I don't know why I didn't do this earlier. I wish I had. I started asking him questions. And I said, Mark, tell me again what you saw. And he started telling me. I said, well, wait a minute. Did you see her put the clothes in that bag? No. Did you see her go through the door? No, I didn't. Well, then how do you know she did it? Well, I saw her after she was through the door. Oh, I said, wait a minute. I went and got the prosecutor. I said, have you really asked him what he actually seen? He said, no. I said, he didn't see her take it. He said, oh my goodness. (laughs) Because you see, with few exceptions, you can only testify of something you have first-hand knowledge about. You've all heard her hearsay. You, that's, I can't tell something that Ron told me and testify about that because that's not reliable. I'm not a first hand witness. There's some exceptions to that. I'm not a first hand witness to that because the, the evidence has to be reliable. Therefore, it has to be something you have first hand knowledge of, something you've seen yourself, something you've experienced yourself. So the prosecutor had to go and dismiss the case, even though we all knew she was guilty. Because he did not have evidence that was first hand that was reliable enough to convict her. We are witnesses of what we have firsthand knowledge of. This is why you're a reliable witness. Because whatever God's done in your life, you have knowledge of. Not only that, nobody can argue with it. You say, you know, the Lord came into my room and appeared to me, and I mean, he sounds spooky to people, but how do I argue with it because it happened to you? Maybe. The experience I've told you in my living room where I just cried out to God and I felt this warmth go through me and this joy go through me, you can't argue me out of that because I was there. It happened to me. It may have been different with you, but it happened to me. But it's more than just that experience, it's what my life is like. And so to preach the gospel is more than just what we say, we are advertisements, we are living epistles, living letters, living testimonies of something. And the beginning is to be, examine ourselves and ask ourselves, what is my life a testimony of? What am I advertising? What is the way I conduct myself saying about the gospel, about God, about Jesus. All right. Let's go and look at a great example of this. Let's go over to John chapter 14. Again, Jesus is preparing His disciples. I love this section of Scripture in here, starting in John 13, right on through John 17. Because Jesus knows this is His last opportunity to meet with His staff, before he goes to the cross and so this is an insight this is a time when he has a chance to deposit the last things he needs to tell them before everything changes because after this time the next time they see him he's not going to be in the same form he's going to be in his glorified body and so he's packing into these last moments the last crucial things for them and most of these are things he's already told them but they didn't get it I don't know about you but that gives me a lot of hope I mean, it's, it's. I was meeting with some pastor friends of mine this week, and and we were talking about just these are kind of things pastors experience. Where he said, you know, this first people came up to him that had been coming for just a little while, and they were sharing with somebody who was brand new, saying, you know, oh, the best message I've ever heard here, you know. And here's the CD, and they handed it to it, and the pastor kind of looked over to see which one of his message it was. It wasn't one of his. <laughs> <laughs> and God has ways of humbling us like that. I said, no, what I love to experience is when somebody comes up to me, we have a guest speaker and somebody comes up, oh, that's, I've never heard that before, that's the most wonderful thing and I just preached it last week. (laughs) So here's Jesus. He's not just preaching to them on Sunday morning, he's living with them. Using teaching opportunities. And at the end we see they still didn't get some things. So he's going back over things and some of these he still doesn't get. And so we're going to look at one of these important things he's going to explain to them because what he's going to commission them is what we've seen. He's going to commission them to do what we're talking about. He's going to commission them to go preach the gospel. And nowhere in there is he telling them, go talk. But he's going to give them an example here. And he starts for chapter 14 comforting them a little bit about because he knows things are going to change and he's going to talk to them about that. We're going to pick up in verse 7. Because what he just said about, you know, about where I'm going, you can't go. And then they said, well, where is that? We want to come with you. And he says, well, he said, uh, he said y- you know the way. And then Thomas says, well, Lord, we don't know the way. And Jesus says that famous scripture, I am the way, I am the truth. And I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Now verse 7. This is how they get the way. If you had known me, because he's just basically told Philip, you really don't know who I am. I was living with him for three years, seeing miracles done. Oh, if we could just see those miracles, and I believe we will. But they still didn't know. They still didn't understand who he was fully. He said, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know Him and you've seen Him. Now they'd heard the Father speak from heaven on several occasions. If, uh, when He was baptized originally and He comes out of the River Jordan, there's a voice that speaks from heaven and now they, may, they may not have been there for that occasion. Says, so, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Peter, James and John were on the mountain of transfiguration with Him when, when they saw this Jesus transfigured into His glorified body And Moses and Elijah met with him, but then a voice spoke out of heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So they'd heard the father speak of him, but you know, those experiences fade. This is why you can't live on what's called mountaintop experiences. You can't live on an ecstasy experience. The Bible says we're to live by faith, not by experiences. Those experiences are wonderful, but it's living by faith. Faith. The most challenging times to live by faith is when nothing spectacular is happening. It's just you get up, you go to work, you do what you're supposed to do, and you do you, you do your job, you know, and you go back home, you go to bed, you go, and, and we trust God every step of the way, and there's nothing spectacular, no angel showed up, no vision, you know, it just, you know, you know, no supernatural thing happened. You just walk every day by faith with Him because He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. If you'd known me, you would have known my father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip, I'm so glad Philip spoke up. Philip said, Lord, show us the father and it's sufficient for us. Now, I don't know whether Philip was being a little prideful there, saying, you know, Peter, don't bother this time, I'll do this one. Show us the father. They really want to see the father. Or I was just, I don't know what was going on in his heart. But you know what's going on in Jesus' as he answered. Jesus, verse 9 says, Have I been with you so long and you don't know me? Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So, how can you say, show us the Father? We're talking about being a witness of him. We've seen that the Corinthian church, Paul says, you are a witness. You are a letter. You are evidence of my ministry, of what God's done through me. You are evidence of Christ and how that he's real. And the chain in in the grace that he has, you are you are evidence of the gospel, because remember they were pagans. They didn't come out of one Christian church into another. They were pagans that worshipped Diana in, in Corinth. They performed human sacrifices. They practiced all kinds of witchcraft. Worship all kinds of gods. <clears throat> and they, one of the first things that had to happen is they they were so convicted they were bringing their their idols. And they were burning them and they were bringing their old books and burning them. There are some books you may have that you need to burn. They were bur- they're, you know, bringing the things they used to worship and trust in and burning them to get that out of their system, to get that out of their house. So there was a drastic change that had taken place in them. And as a result, they were ostracized by their family and their friends. Some of you paid a price. There are people that have come here out of other churches and they paid a price because their family doesn't speak to them anymore. You just keep putting God first and watch what God will do because your life becomes a witness to them that this is real. And so Jesus is saying to them, saying to them, don't you understand, Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, I am his witness here. I am his witness here. A witness is somebody you can see or hear talking about or testifying or something you can't see or hear. If you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Verse 10. Now look at this. Don't don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? How could Jesus say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? What he's about to say, explain to them, is the reason you can see the Father when you see me is he's in me. His life is in me. The life that you see in me is his life in me. He's going to make that even clearer as we get into this a little further. Verse 10 again. Don't don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you these words that have been so precious to you, these words that have been so powerful to you, these words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. Now, that New King James has authority in there. But in the Greek, it just says, on my own. In other words, and elsewhere, I think it's in John chapter 5, he says, I only do the things I see my Father doing. I only say what I hear him say. Now, you and I live with a struggle within us between what I want to do and what God wants me to do. I know I'm not the only one in this room that has that struggle. There's still in my fallen nature, in my flesh, this, what happened in the garden when Satan tempted Eve and then Adam to, to establish their own will, basically to establish their own kingdom. God gave us a will so we could serve Him willfully, willingly. And, and the temptation of Satan was to exercise that will for our own benefit and to establish ourselves separate from God. Now, when you're a sinner, you're living separate from God. But once you come to Christ, God's living in you. This is what we're seeing here. But there's still that old part of you in our flesh and in our unrenewed mind that wants to do what I want to do. So there's this battle in me, this Holy Spirit in me, in my spirit. This is what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 7. The things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do are the very things I go out and do. There's no help in me. And then he calls out at the end of that chapter and says, who, who's going to have mercy on me, O wretched man that I am? And the answer, the wonderful answer is Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's interesting because in Romans chapter 7, there's never a mention of the Holy Spirit. It's Paul's effort to control himself and do what's right and so there's so this battle of who's going to rule in your life are you going to rule in your life or is God through his spirit going to rule in your life and as we're learning on Wednesday nights and renewing the mind the battle of that is not just for you the battle for that is who, wh- what kind of witness you're going to be of Christ to the world because Satan wants to keep such pressure on your life that's what Romans 12.2 talks about It says, do not be conformed to this world. The word conformed is a Greek word that means pressure brought from the outside so that regardless of what your nature's like inside, you look and act and talk like that mold from the outside, like the world. So Satan's plan is to keep such pressure on you, such temptation on you, that regardless of what God's put on the inside of you, it never gets to the outside so nobody else can see the witness of who's really living in you. And that's what this battle is. Who's going to rule in your life? Which kingdom is going to rule in your life, in my life? And so Jesus says this. He says, I don't speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Now well, that's an interesting switch. Wait a minute. If you're reading that, look at this. In that second sentence, Jesus says, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak in my own authority or in my own. I would, have, I would assume he'd go on to say, and the Father who dwells in me, he speaks the words. But that's not what it says, is it? And I can tell you in the Greek language, it doesn't say that either. So Jesus said, the words that I speak to you, I don't speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, he does the works, the deeds. So not only is God speaking through me, but God is acting through me. Now, if Jesus were to be submitted in our day and age to some psychological profile, and I'm not a psychologist, I haven't studied psychology, so if you are a psychologist and this is your degree, forgive me if I'm wrong, but, but, I, but I suspect from what I know they think he's messed up. He has no initiative. He has no sense of his own identity. He has no sense of his own individual worth. He has no, no, he has no uh, uh, sense of his presence. He has no ambition of his own. He has no will or life of his own. I mean, he just does only. Listen to this. He's a daddy's boy. He only does what his father tells him to do. I mean, he's 33 years old. Come on. And he only speaks what his father tells him to speak. He can't come up with something on his own. Whoa. This guy's got some problems. And I'm supposed to follow him? Oh, come on. I mean, you know, growing up, we're supposed to find our own identity. Who we are supposed to be? And nowadays, you're even supposed to discover your own gender. <laughs> Did I say that? <laughs> I wonder why... Oh, another tangent now. My wife's saying, don't do this. I wonder why... I love it when I get reports from parents that are they're pregnant and have gone to the, to the, for the, the ultrasound. They come back, it's a I want to say, how do you know? Don't they need to grow up and figure that out later on? I didn't say that either, sorry. I'm not getting on anybody's case. That's just my view. Where was I before you distracted me here? Oh, Oh, yeah, daddy's boy. I'm supposed to fo- we're supposed to have our own identity we're supposed to to have our own purpose and goals in life Jesus didn't have any of that he didn't have any of that he didn't have his own goals his own ambition he didn't have his own identity he didn't speak his own words and we're supposed to follow that example but wait a minute The devil couldn't stop him. In fact, his own testimony at the end is Satan could find no place in me. In Ephesians, Paul says, give the devil no place. He tried to get it. He couldn't find anything. And I look at it this way. It's kind of, you know, if you're you're, uh, uh, with the football players in the old days, they had the loose jerseys. And what they found out is when their runners go through, they just grab the jersey. So what they would do is they'd get these tight ones like this so nothing sticks out because there's, then there's nothing to get a hold of. And Jesus said, I am so tight with my Father. I am so one with Him. There's none of me sticking out that the devil can get a hold of. So if there's something in your life that really irks you, there's something in your life you keep tripping over, that's part of you sticking out that the devil can get a hold of easily. Your shirt tail's hanging out. I know that's in style now too but I won't go on that one. Jesus was the freest man that's ever the, what by our profile would be the most messed up man is in reality the freest man that ever walked this earth. The devil face to face with him couldn't tempt him couldn't get him and you're never going to deal with him face to face. He nothing could stop him when they tried to. His own townspeople tried to kill him. They couldn't stop him. Why? Because he was totally submitted to his father. So to get a hold of him, they had to get a hold of his father. We've been sold an idea that's upside down, along with many other principles that are upside down. So Jesus said. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus is saying I am an accurate witness of my Father. If you've seen me you've seen him. If you've heard me You've heard him. If you've seen what I do, you see what his do, he does. In, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, He is the outshining of God's glory. Not the reflection of God's glory, the outshining. Because the Father lived in him, his glory shined out of him. His love shined out of him. His grace shined out of him. His goodness. That's why sinners came to sit at his feet because what shined out of Him, what emanated out of Him, was God's grace and God's truth. John 1, 14 says, And the Word became flesh, became alive, became a witness. And we beheld Him as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Pharisees were hypocrites. There was not truth coming from them. But Jesus told them the truth. And I believe people still want to hear the truth. There's a movement out there to change churches so that we're so user friendly people will want to come and feel comfortable coming to the church. But the church is a place sometimes we're supposed to come and feel uncomfortable. Because there's nothing out there going to make you feel uncomfortable. Because when you stand before God, I wanna have already felt uncomfortable. I want to have already heard the truth and dealt with the uncomfortable while there's a chance to do something about it. I don't want to feel so comfortable through my life and come to the end and find out, whoa, did I miss it. I want to hear the truth. And I believe people who are sincere really want to hear the truth. They were drawn to Jesus because He told them the truth, but they were also joined to, drawn to Him because He told the truth in love, which is what Ephesians tells us we're to do. The grace told the truth. So Jesus was that witness of his Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Most assuredly, verse 12. Well, let me, um, Jesus was saying it was the Father who was doing the works in him and through him. I want to make this distinction because it's so easy to read these words and miss what he's saying here. Listen carefully. Jesus is not saying here, I have imitated my father. Because to imitate is to look at what somebody else does and then I, on my own strength, go mimic what they did. And you can do that and not have their heart. You can do that just out of your head. In fact, God made us as human beings to imitate one another. You start hanging around people, you'll start talking like them. That's why Proverbs talks about so much to to, to a father to warn his son, be careful who you associate with because you pick up habits and you pick up attitudes just by associating with people. So make sure the people you're associating with have the habits and attitudes you want. My mother was born in Maine and so she had a Maine accent but she lived most of her life right outside of Philadelphia. And so she spoke most of the time without a main accent until she went home. And within a day or so, she's picking up the, "Ah, she's picking up that, you know, because the hearing that brought that back. We tend to imitate, not even consciously, because God made us. This is why you've got to be careful who you're around. But imitating's different. Imitating has no power in it. But Jesus didn't imitate his father. He didn't study his father and say, now look, how do I, what would would daddy do? Remember the bracelets, what would Jesus do? That's imitating Jesus. So I think, all right, what would Jesus do in this? All right, I need to do that too. But there's no anointing in that. Because you're doing it in your strength, your mental strength, and it won't last. You notice you don't hear much about that anymore. That was a fad that passed. And there's nothing in this commission about a fad. Jesus didn't wear a t-shirt saying what will my father do? He did what his father did. So to imitate is to as an act of my will and with my own mind figure out what I'm how I'm supposed to act and then I make myself go do that. And that will last for a while, but the same spirit and heart of that won't come across. Jesus didn't imitate his father. His Father lived in him and lived his will through him. This is a very important difference. This is what he's teaching his disciples. It's the Father in me, not my belief in the Father. It's the Father in me who does the works. And now he's going to talk to them. Verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, will he do also. Stop and think about that a second. I've read commentaries that kind of try to dismiss this, but look what he says The works that I do. I challenge you to go back through the Gospels and note down what he did. And the two prominent things he did was to share the gospel, to talk to people about his father and heal the, relieve suffering, heal the sick, cast out demons, remove suffering. Those are the two major types of works that he did. And we're in a generation when the church wants to wipe one half of those out and say they were done when the last apostle died. You can't find that in the Bible. At least I can't. Jesus didn't say the works that I do, the spiritual works that I do. You can't see spiritual works as easily as you can see physical works. And where we're headed with this is Jesus went among the people and he cared for their needs. He ministered to their suffering and to their needs. I heard a pastor a while ago say this of a large operation out in California. In fact, it's Tommy Barnett. It's Matthew Barnett, the pastor of the Dream Center in Los Angeles. Incredible work. that We were part of the beginning of that here. And he said, you don't have any right to speak to people about the gospel until they know, first of all, how much you care for them. And the point is, Jesus didn't just preach to them. He cared for their needs cared for their suffering he cared for their struggles I was reading yesterday my wife and I in the morning were spending some time and I was reading down through John 11 I know the scripture I mean most of you know it it's the shortest verse in the Bible Jesus wept but I kept reading through there with my heart and you know the story of Mary and Martha just lost their brother Lazarus he's died And there's a little irk because they had sent word to Jesus while he was still alive that your friend that you love is dying and Jesus didn't come and do anything. He waited four days. Well, that's very uncaring. Oh, but remember, he only did what he saw his father do. And he didn't see his father going until four days later. What that means is the responsibility for that was the father's, not Jesus's. So when Jesus gets there they're a little irked at him. But see his protection is he didn't do what he wanted to do he did what the father showed him to do. And, and Martha comes out first of all and she's upset at him and says you know if you've been here we know you could have done something about him. We know that you could have done something about him. She says but even now we know that in the last day you, you can raise him from the dead in the resurrection. She can see the future. And he says, Martha, I am the resurrection. Not I will be on that day. I am right now the resurrection and the life. And then she went to get Mary and come out and says, the master's here. We don't know what he's going to do, but the master's here. And he looked around. The verse before says, and they were all weeping. And then Jesus wept. Think about that. He was so moved by their suffering, by their tears, that God's Son, that means God, because He only did what He saw His Father do, that meant God wept over their suffering. Listen to this. Knowing that in just a few moments... He's going to bring him back from the dead and present him to them, and he, he doesn't look yeah, I know you're going through it now, but, but it's going to be okay later on. That means God doesn't look at what you're going through right now and says, "Yeah, I know, but when you get to heaven, it's all going to be fine. God with you in whatever you're going through right now." And Jesus wept with, with their own grieving and their own sorrow. He was touched with their own sorrow, knowing that the answer is about to come, but he was moved by where they were now. He only did what he saw his father do. Your tears are kept by God. He knows what you're going through. where were we oh works greater works the works that I do shall you do also so the way he was a witness of his father was not just what he said but it's what he did and now he's telling them the same way I'm a witness of your, my father you're to be a witness of me and the works that I do Shall you do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. That's for he who believes in me. Greater works than these. And I hear people get, you know, what are the greater works? Well, it's getting people saved. It may be. I'm not so concerned with the greater works until we're doing the works. Amen. He didn't say the greater works will you do, he said the works that I do. So all you've got to do is go back and look at what did he do. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. And then the greater works will come. Whether it's greater in number, greater in dimension. I don't know the answer to that just now. I just know we won't find out until we're doing the works. And the works that I do, will you do also. Will they do, all? he do also. And greater works because I go to my Father. Down in verse 16. Verse 15, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 16, he says, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. Another is a Greek word that means another one just like the one you already have. There's another word that means another, like of a different kind, but this means another exactly like the one, a replacement for what you have right now. And what was the helper they had right now? Jesus. And he's going to say, I'm going to go and I'm going to ask the Father, he's going to send you a replacement for me. And later on, he says, Who has been with you, but now will be in you. As the Father was in me, I'm going to be in you by the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. And he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. And he goes and talks about the Spirit of Truth. But we're going to go down and look at verse over chapter 15. Yeah, chapter 15, because we're going to end here. Because in the meantime, what he's talking about is the Holy Spirit and some other things. But chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit comes. Now remember back in, remember in Acts chapter 1, he said, I've died for you, I've been raised from the dead, I've done my part. You're about to go forth, but before you go, you need to wait, because you don't have everything. You have the information, you've seen me, you've heard the Father, you've seen the Father, you've been trained, I've disciplined you, Why are you called disciples? But you still need one more thing. Wait here until you get it. Until you're in due with the power on high. Then you shall be witnesses of me. When the power has come upon you. Now he's explaining what that is. This is before. And he said, Because I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send you another helper. That word literally means in the Greek, one called aside to you to do whatever it is you need to carry out your task. And the helper comes who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, this is the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of me. So when Jesus is telling them, You're going to go when the Holy Spirit has actually come. Now he's telling him he's going to come. In Acts chapter 1 he's saying wait until he comes. And when he comes, then you will be able to go out and be witnesses of me. You will be a living epistle. Read by all men. Written not on letters of stone, but written by the Spirit in your heart. I will come to live in you by the presence of my Spirit, and I will live my life through you. We're going to look later on in Ephesians 3 where Paul prays for the church at Ephesus and asks the Father to strengthen them by His Spirit in their inner man so that Christ may be able to dwell, live, settle down in, take up residence, live His life and His will through them, that being rooted and grounded in love, they may come to know together with all the saints... The breadth and length and height and depth, and to know by experience the love of Christ that passes understanding, so that you may be filled with all of God's fullness. God wants to, it's astounding. He wants to fill you with Himself, so that wherever you go, God's going. Not just in you, but people are experiencing it. Peter walked down the street. They would bring the sick out so that they, his shadow passing over them would heal them. Whoa! That wasn't Peter. We know Peter. Peter with his foot in his mouth. We know Peter oh Lord I'll go die for you and within a few hours he denied him three times but this isn't the same Peter because he's now filled with God in him doing what God wants to do but here's the problem you ever go to put gas in your gas tank you know it's empty but after about you know 50 cents worth it backs right up again why? because there's air in there and as long as there's air in there until that air gets out the gas can't come in because two things can't occupy the same space at the same time if they try it's called a fender bender you can't be filled with God if you're filled with you to the extent there's you still in there God can't fill that part with him but he's at work in us both to will and to do his good pleasure I'll end with this quick story. And I, I, the shame is that the story's so old. <laughs> but while I was still practicing law when we were out in Oklahoma, and I've told this before, the senior partner's daughter worked there. And we were going through a rough time at the time. We just had uh, twins and I had no, no job for quite a while. We had no health insurance or any other kind of insurance. And things had been very tight and God was in the process of getting us out of that because we tithe faithfully through the whole thing. That's another message. And I wasn't even paying much attention to what was going on. I, was just, see, I wasn't sitting there in the middle of the hallway with a little table saying with some tracks saying, Jesus is Lord, you need to get saved. They all knew that I was a Christian. They all knew that I had left the practice in Boston to come out there and, go to, and to go to school. But I was working among them. They saw me some days when I was tense, and some days when I was a little irritated. And, and one day, this secret, this the senior partner's daughter is passing me in the hall. She says, "Can I ask you a question?" I said, "Yeah, what is it?" She said, "What do you have that I don't have?" And I had some books in my hand. I thought that's what she was talking about. Well, I don't know which one are you looking for. She says, "No, no, no, no. There's something in your, but different about your life that you have I don't have." And it took me a moment to come out of what I was thinking to realize what she's asking me. And I've learned this. I said, Do you really want to know? And she said, Yes. I said, Well, come in here. And we went into the library. And I said, It's not what I have, it's who I have. And I began to talk to her about Jesus. And then she kind of looked at me as if, Well, that's not what I was looking for. She wanted the peace that I had in the midst of all that without the giver of the peace. But she saw something she can't ever forget. She saw the gospel, not in words written out, but she saw the fruit of it in my life, you know, a little bit enough so that she was willing to ask me something. The question we have to ask ourselves What are they seeing in our lives? What are we letters of? What comment, who are we letters of commendation of? My accomplishments. Look at where I've come to in my life. Look at what I have. Look at the car I have. Look at what I've accomplished. Look at my family. Look at all the things I've done. Or my letter of commendation of what He's done in my life. And I don't have to tell people that. They can see it. Well, I think we all have a long way to go. And the way is through Him, not ourselves, not some self-help program. But it's being willing to let Him work in our lives. Be willing to allow the Holy Spirit... To do the work in our lives. So, we're going to take a moment right now and just, I want you to just bow your heads for a moment. We're going to be quiet. And I want you just, without saying anything to anybody, just ask yourself this question What have I heard today that's touched my heart? It's not my words. It's whatever the Spirit of God may have touched in your heart through these words. What has touched my heart? What has maybe convicted me? Not condemned me, but convicted me? What has maybe challenged me? And then in the quietness of your heart, I want you to admit it, not just to yourself, but to the Lord. Say, Lord, I see this in my heart. I see this may not be right. I see this... I don't know what kind of a witness I am. Show me. Just be honest in your heart before Him. He already knows. He wants us to see. Now, Father, as we're preparing to close this service, You see down in our hearts the things that you see and you see the things that we've acknowledged before you this morning we call upon you to fill us with your spirit we may speak in tongues and we may have experienced before the glory of the Holy Spirit but he's been given to us most of all to fill us with your presence with your love with your goodness your grace your compassion Lord fill us Strengthen us with your Spirit in our inner man that Christ may be able to live his life in us and through us. And that we may be filled with all of your fullness and come to know the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. So that we can go forth and be witnesses in our lives, in the tense situations of our lives, when the pressure's on, when things aren't going well, when disasters happen, that you can take over and your presence can be shown in our lives and through our lives to the world that's around us. And most of all, give us our heart, your heart for those people that we will encounter this week. Thank you for that in Jesus' name.